Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. 2 Timothy, and we're going to examine this evening uh, in our verse-by-verse study, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 7. 2 Timothy is a wonderful book, the last book that Paul wrote, a book that, uh, again, expresses so much his heart for his young son in the ministry, Timothy, who probably was in his 30s, as we noted last week. And there are many things we could look at this evening, but this text in particular has such words of wisdom. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. If you look at the handout that you have this evening, 2 Timothy could easily be entitled, Faithful to the Finish. And the two themes that run through the book continually is faithfulness and being faithful unto the end of the assignment that God has given you. Of course, the thing that we're to be faithful to is the gospel. And 2 Timothy is vitally concerned with the integrity and the faithfulness that we have to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The author, as we will see, is the Apostle Paul. It is his last letter. It is his farewell address to Timothy. Timothy, as in 1 Timothy, is the recipient. The date of writing later, uh, probably A.D. 66 to 67. Uh, The reason that we dated at this particular time is, of course, that uh, Nero is the Roman emperor. He reigns from 54 until 68. He will commit suicide in A.D. 68. And church tradition is pretty consistent uh, that Paul was martyred during the reign of Nero. And so you would probably place his martyrdom toward the latter part of Nero's reign somewhere along 66, 67. Again, just to give you another important date, in AD 64, uh, the city of Rome burned. Nero blamed the Christians. Uh, This opened the door for a persecution of Christians, especially in uh, Rome and in the surrounding areas. And as we will see, most likely Paul was arrested somewhere in the Roman Empire, again brought back to Rome a second time. This time he will not be released, but this time he will be executed in the latter part of Nero's reign. Nero actually uh, was fairly sane 
in his early years, but as we move into his reign, especially around the year 60, he becomes more maniacal. Some people believe he actually suffered some type of mental derangement. And he really becomes extremely paranoid, and therefore all sorts of crazy things happen in the latter part of his reign. And uh, this would again fit uh, into the time period when Paul would have been executed. Place of writing, of course, is Rome. Main divisions taking each chapter. Chapter 1, be faithful to keep the gospel. Chapter 2, be faithful to endure for the gospel. Chapter 3, be faithful to focus on the gospel. Chapter 4, be faithful to the word of the gospel. And so the gospel is crucial, and the idea of faithfulness to it is developed in different ways in each of the four chapters. If you look at page 2, 2 Timothy, faithful to the finish theme, a final farewell from a faithful father. If you want to break the book down into two major sections, you can say that the first two chapters give emphasis upon the work of the gospel, and chapters 3 and 4 give emphasis on the word of the gospel. Breaking those chapters again down, chapter 1, living out the gospel, chapter 2, enduring for the gospel, chapter 3, focusing on the gospel, and chapter 4, preaching the gospel. And again, if you drop to the bottom of the chart, chapter 1 emphasizes the need for Timothy to stir up the gift that is in him, chapter 1, verse 6. In chapter 2, he is challenged to be diligent to present himself approved to God, chapter 2, verse 15. In chapter 3, continue in the things which you have learned, chapter 3, verse 14. He learned them from his mother and his grandmother. And, of course, what he learned was the Word of God. And you have that classic text in 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16, concerning the inspiration of the Bible. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for a number of things. And so there we are taught that the Bible, the Scriptures, are the very breathing out of God, the very breath of God Himself. And then a classic text for those of us called to the Gospel ministry. Chapter 4, verse 2, preach the Word. And there Paul develops various facets of how it is that a faithful minister will indeed preach the Word of God. Go with me then to page 3, and we'll talk about the background material quickly. We've already talked about the pastorals, and so I'll just note that 2 Timothy is the middle book in terms of our New Testament collection, but actually it is the last of Paul's letters, the very last book that he would write. Uh, All of Paul's letters were written to churches with the exception of 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, although, again, we would want to note, 1 Timothy was also intended for the churches. 2 Timothy was intended for the churches, as was Titus and as was Philemon. Though he wrote directly to them, he certainly would not have intended for the letter to to, to go no further than to that particular individual to whom he was writing. I made reference to this a moment ago, but this fills out the information for us. The date of 2 Timothy depends on whether or not it must fit into the history of Acts. If Pauline authorship is dismissed, then, of course, there are many possibilities. But it seems clear that 2 Timothy, as well as the other pastorals, 1 Timothy and Titus, refer to history lying outside the scope of Acts. The traditional date for the close of Acts is A.D. 61-63, making 2 Timothy subsequent to that date. Pauline authorship then precludes a date after circa A.D. 67, the time of Paul's death, Paul hopes to see Timothy again, based upon chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. So there is sufficient time, so sufficient time is needed for Timothy to get to Paul. However, 
Paul also indicates clearly that his death is not far off. In fact, if you just look for a moment at chapter 4, verse 6 through verse 8. I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure, my exodus, is at hand. And he was not talking about his deliverance from prison. He gives no indication that he expected that. He means his departure from this world for the world to come. And then he says, beautifully in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the faith. I have kept the faith. Finally, or henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And then, since we're here, it's actually worth reading, and it really would almost bring a tear to your eye. He then goes on to give this very personal word. Verse 9, be diligent to come to me quickly. Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark. Bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. And then again, a very touching word, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. In other words, he is going to say to him, you need to come before winter and I need a coat. Uh, Paul, as we'll see in a moment, is not under house arrest. Tradition has it that he was in the lower aspects, the lower regions of the Mamertine dungeon. Uh, it would have been cold. It would have been damp, rat infested, refuse flowing down into there. It would not have been anything nice at all. And so Paul says, uh, bring that cloak which also would indicate if he left his cloak with Carpus at Troas, he only had one. And again, we can't even begin to put ourselves always back into the world of the first century and understand how very little to them uh, meant a great deal. Then he talks about those that have opposed him. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. He gives uh, Alexander over to the Lord. You must also beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. And then again, some words that just absolutely break your heart. At my first defense, no one stood with me. All forsook me, but may it not be charged against them. And then Paul turns it back around amazingly. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And to this day, we really have no idea exactly what he meant by that uh, particular statement. And so Paul makes it very clear that he longs to see Timothy. He wants him to bring John Mark. He's by himself except for uh, his uh uh, accompaniment by, uh, by Dr. Luke. And so he says there in verse 18, The Lord will deliver me from every evil work, preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he gives just a closing word. And notice what he says in verse 21. Do your utmost to come before winter. Why? Because when winter comes, uh, it will be almost impossible for uh, Timothy to travel through the Mediterranean. 
Uh, he will need to wait until the spring. And I don't believe Paul anticipated that he would still be alive when the springtime uh, would come. And so all of that helps us put things in perspective, dating the book around A.D. 66 to 67. The origin of the book, according to 2 Timothy 1, 16 and 17, Paul is in Rome. Also, chapter 4, verse 6 and 16 seem to indicate Paul had already undergone one trial, it was negative, and was now awaiting another where the outcome did not look favorable. Paul was awaiting trial then in Rome because he was a Roman citizen and could appeal to Caesar at this time Nero. And thus the prison epistle of Second uh, Timothy was written from a Roman prison, a cold and uncomfortable dungeon. The audience. The letter is clearly meant for Timothy, chapter 1, verse 2. It's very personal in nature. It would appear that Timothy was still pastoring at Ephesus based upon chapter 1, verse 3, verse 18, chapter 4, verse 19. Paul did ask him to make a quick stop in Troas and then to come to him quickly, get there before winter. Purpose. This is the last of Paul's letters of which there is any record. The closest of his death. And the urgency of his message revealed that Paul is giving his last instructions to his dear son, should Timothy not be able to reach him in time. In fact, any time I've taught Second Timothy, I've told people, last words are meant to be lasting words. If you really want to know the heart of someone, listen to what they say or write when they know they are going to die. They're not going to mess around much with trivial conversation or things of no consequence. They're going to get immediately to those issues that matter most. And what was Paul interested in? The gospel. What was Paul interested in? The reliability of the scriptures that are indeed that which contained the gospel. And Paul was concerned that Timothy would, be, would remain faithful to the faith and that he would preach the word. That's what he said when he knew that he did not have much more time to live. Thus, this theme of remaining faithful runs throughout the letter. It ties all the pieces together, and connected to that is a strong secondary theme concerning the gospel. Actually, as you work your way through the book, you will discover that Paul uses many different terms, many different phrases to describe the gospel, but without exception, they again and again and again drive you to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Thus, Paul was urging Timothy to follow in his steps and finish the race faithfully, as Paul said in chapter 4, he has done. And so the nature and occasion of the letter makes it extremely important for all Christians to both hear and heed its message. Thus, if we summarized in two overarching ideas, number one, Paul wrote to stimulate Timothy. And number two, Paul wrote to summon Timothy to Rome. In terms of stimulating him, it was to courage and faith. It was to withstand false doctrine, and it was to choose faithful men for ministry. I just recently finished teaching through 1 Timothy at a church in uh, the Dallas area. Uh, we at the seminary are going through Titus on Wednesdays when I preach uh, eight times this semester. Now we are surveying tonight 2 Timothy, and again, it's amazing. Just how interested Paul was and how concerned Paul was at the end of his ministry concerning false teaching. You would think that early in the church, when all the apostles are still around, or at least a number of them, and the uh, New Testament is being miscripturated, 
and they are close to the time of the actual ministry of Jesus, that their doctrine would have been fine. But no, we're only about 35 years after the time of Christ, and Paul already is having to deal with false teaching in every direction he turns. And I have come to understand that actually that never changes. Uh, It may be that the uh, false teachers wear uh, different clothing and dress up in different kinds of ways, but from the time that I began ministry 28 years ago until now, as I look back through the, uh, uh, the 1980s, the 1990s, and now the early part of 2000, false teaching has been with us every step of the way. It may change its uh, outward veneer. But again, as I look at the Scriptures and I look at the uh, contemporary uh, false teachers, almost again without exception, you mark it down, they get it wrong, first of all, about who Jesus is. And secondly, in one way or another, they will question the sufficiency of the Word of God, either directly or perhaps uh, just by their neglect of it. I got after this today, and so I was still still on my mind tonight, but actually I was provoked by a meeting I just came from a moment ago. Uh, I was talking to my students today about the fact that it's rather unique, if you think about it, that over the last five to seven years, three of the most popular books that all made number one on the New York bestsellers list was The Prayer of Jabez, The Purpose Driven Life, and now Joel Osteen's Your Best Life Now. And one of the men that I shared that with a moment ago said, have you actually ever listened to an entire Joel Osteen sermon? And I said, well, actually I have. One night I drank a full bottle of Pepto-Bismol, took several Alka-Seltzers, and took some Tylenol, and I was able to get through the entire thing. And he said, um, did he even one time in his sermon use Scripture? No. And normally he doesn't. And if he does, it's just a proof text here and a proof text there. He said, did he mention Jesus? On this particular message, he did once. Though it's just in a passing reference about something that had really nothing to do with anything substantive or significance. And then he did not know, but I've done some research in this area recently. I said, well, you do understand. He has said very clearly in recent days that he will not speak of heaven or of hell. He will not speak of repentance. He is not going to talk about the cross. He is not going to say anything that in any way would alienate anyone or make them feel bad. His goal is to make everybody feel better. To which I have said on a number of occasions, what he is doing in many instances is making many people feel better as he helps them march into hell. Now, folks, my goal is never to make you feel better. You say, well, we get that every week. I'm going to, no, no, don't you be ugly or mean or anything like that. Uh, my goal is to be faithful to teach the Word of God. If I do that, some weeks you'll feel great. Some weeks you won't feel great. Some weeks you'll feel comforted. And some weeks you hopefully will be convicted. And some weeks the Word of God will cut you so that you have to go home and do something about what you've heard. That's what our pastor does Sunday morning and Sunday night as well. And then I brought out the fact that uh, this came out of a uh, Associated Baptist Press. Every now and then they get something right. Uh, they point out that uh, they are scalping tickets in uh, the Chicago area for the Joel Osteen, um, whatever you call it, he's traveling America. $10 tickets are going for $190 an hour. I mean, an hour. $190 a ticket. 
pretend like I'm doing seminary statistics there, but $190 for a ticket to go in and listen to a pop psychology heretic. Now, here's what bothers me. I fear that some of you tonight are like, ooh, ooh, I like Joel Osteen. I enjoy watching him blink like he does all over the place and prance around up there looking up in the air and doing what he does. Well, shame on you for being so stupid theologically. You ought to be absolutely ashamed of yourself. And I discovered in just the last few weeks, I, I don't know, I guess I've been on this little semi-bombing raid. Actually, what I'm doing is just throwing this out there to see what kind of reaction I get. Because after all, I can hit and run except with y'all. I have to come back every week here. But other places, I just go in, do my thing, and I'm gone. And the pastor has to clean up the mess that I leave. Actually, I don't do that. I don't do that. I never do anything that I think will get him in that kind of trouble. But as I throw these things kind of out, I want to tell you something, folks. I am not happy at what I'm seeing. Because I'm getting body language. I'm getting looks. And I'm even getting some people bold enough to come up afterwards and say, Now, now, wait a minute. And they are angry that I would dare question this sweet, young, 41-year-old, smiling guy that tries to make everybody feel better. Well, folks, that's just the end run or the, the, the last straw of a culture that has become so awash in the therapeutic that we think all that really needs to happen is that we make people feel better and we have done a good thing. You have not done a good thing. How many of you want to go to a doctor uh, next week and he examines your body and he discovers that you've got cancer? And that cancer is starting to spread. But right now, it's localized enough that if he goes in and does surgery, he can get all of it and he will prolong your life. How many want him to say, no, golly gee whiz, you know, if I tell them they've got cancer, that's going to make them feel bad. And so I'm just not going to tell them they've got cancer. I'm going to tell them that everything is just fine. And then you go home and your cancer continues to spread and infect your body and eventually kill you. Now, how many of you would rather have your doctor tell you everything's fine Or your doctors say, I need to tell you something, and you need to kind of brace yourself. You've got cancer. And if we don't do something about this cancer, you will die. But I do have good news for you. It's at a stage where I can go in and cut it out, and I think we can get all of it. And if we do, though it's going to be painful, and it's going to lay you up, and you're going to have to have recuperation time, but through all of that, you will live. I think all of you would want the doctor who does the latter, not the former. Your Joel Osteen's of the world are physicians who know you've got cancer. I mean, he knows. He's not stupid. He knows what the Bible says. But he's not going to tell you you have cancer because he doesn't want to hurt your feelings. Well, folks, I don't want you going to hell with a smile on your face feeling good about it because i got news for you. About a split second after you take your last breath, you won't feel good about it anymore. I want someone that with love and compassion will tell me the truth even when the truth cuts and hurts. And so Paul saw this in the first century. 
I'm not surprised we see it again and again and again and again in our century. Sometimes people in Southern Baptist life will say, well, you know, we had this conservative resurgence and we turned our denomination around and they will say something like this. And no, isn't it good that the battle is over? Folks, only a fool says that. The battle is never, ever over. When I, if God gives me years, am an old man, sitting in a rocking chair somewhere, can't see, can't hear, drooling on myself, I promise you, you younger guys will still be in a battle. There'll still be false teachers. There'll still be theological error. There'll still be, as the Bible says, seducing spirits of demons trying to lead the church of the Lord Jesus Christ astray. The battle will be over when Jesus comes again, but not Till then. So don't let yourself be seduced and fooled by that kind of thing. So he says we've got to withstand false doctrine. And to do that, let her see, you've got to choose faithful men for ministry. Now, very quickly, if you look over on page 5, I thought it would be helpful for you to contrast these two imprisonments of Paul. Remember, he's in Rome the first time and he writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. They fall under what we classically call the prison epistles. There is a second imprisonment and that is when he writes this single book, the book of 2 Timothy. And if you compare what you read in 2 Timothy with what you read in Acts and the prison letters, here's what you discover. In his first imprisonment, he was accused by the Jews of heresy and sedition against the nation of Israel. In his second imprisonment, he is pursued now by Roman authorities arrested as a criminal against the empire. First imprisonment, he's under house arrest. He's got good living conditions. People can come and see him on a regular basis. Second imprisonment, he's in the Mamertine dungeon. Poor conditions, cold, dark. It's not good at all. First imprisonment, many people visit him. Second imprisonment, except for Luke, he's all alone. First imprisonment, many opportunities for Christian witness. Second imprisonment, his opportunities are now greatly restricted. First imprisonment, he thinks he's going to be set free. Second imprisonment, he anticipates that he is going to be executed. And so with that as an introduction, very quickly, let me show you some wonderful things he says in chapter 2, 1 through 7, as he gives us a portrait of the minister of God. And this is so good, because what Paul is saying to all of us involved in ministry, and by the way, all of us are involved in ministry. You say, oh, I'm not a minister, Danny. Oh, yes, you are. If you're saved, you're saved to minister. And sometimes in ministry, whether it be on the scale of Brother Bill or whether it be in a Sunday school room working with little children, sometimes you need to take on the role and the mindset of a teacher. Sometimes you need to take on the role and the mindset of a soldier. Sometimes you need to take on the role or the mindset of an athlete. And sometimes you need to take on the role or the mindset of a farmer. It is multifaceted in the way you need to think about what it means to do ministry. So very quickly, first of all, he says, be a teacher. You therefore, my son. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, these four pictures, the first one of the teacher is the one that's sort of hidden, but it's very clear there at the end of verse 2, who will be able to teach others also. So, 
What does a good, faithful teacher need to know? Well, number one, he needs to know where to stand. You, therefore, my son, be strong. It's a present imperative. Word of command, continuous action. You continually be strong where? In the grace that is in Christ Jesus. If you and I are going to be good, faithful teachers, we will take our stand... And we will solidify ourselves in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Again, he is worried about those that buy into a work salvation. He is worried about those who propagate a self-help gospel. He is worried about anything that is not God-centered and is rather man-centered. Continually, Paul stands strong against that kind of teaching. You know where to stand. Secondly, you know what to share. The things that you have heard from me among many faithful witnesses. In other words, that which converted me converted you and will convert others. That which taught me the faith that I've taught you the faith will teach others the faith. In other words, Timothy, you really don't need anything new. I would remind our generation especially, new is not always better. And old is not always bad. And that's especially true when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The old, old story is just as true in the 21st century as it was in the first century. We don't need anything new. I'm always jaundiced and skeptical and my fists go up spiritually when someone comes along and says, I have a new insight. I'm telling you, I get the spiritual heebie-jeebies when someone shows up with that kind of message. Just put your guard up because you're probably hearing something that's not going to help, but rather it's going to hurt. So you've got to know what to share. But then thirdly, you know who to send. You are to commit these to what kind of men? Faithful men who in turn are able to teach others also. You've got a third generation movement here. Well, actually, really, you've got four because Paul heard it first from somebody. So you've got the generation that taught it to Paul. Paul's two. Paul gets it to Timothy three. And now Timothy passes on to others. That's four. And one of the things that is valuable for you and for me is to watch ourselves and not ask the question, who have I discipled? Which is a good question. Who have I discipled? But rather, ask this question. Those that I've discipled, who are they discipling? Now you've made progress. Those that you've discipled, and those that you've discipled so effectively, who are now discipling others, there is the mark of Christian maturity and genuine discipleship. And Paul says, what I gave you, I'm looking for you to give others who what? Then can teach Others, again, also, there's the role of a teacher. But now, secondly, be a soldier. He says there in verse 3, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. We saw our first imperative in verse 1, be strong. We saw a second imperative in verse 2. Commit these to faithful men. We now see a third imperative in verse 3. You, therefore, must endure hardship. In other words, Paul is very honest. Look, sometimes in ministry it's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. You're going to be beating your head against the wall. You're going to be slugging your way through. Understand Again, this prosperity kind of gospel or theology is just blatant heresy. It is not true. 
Sometimes you be faithful to God and they're going to chop your head off. What they did to Paul. I guess Paul just got out of God's will at the end. Now what moron would say something like that? No, sometimes you're faithful to God and you lose everything. Sometimes you're faithful to God and you're persecuted. Sometimes you're faithful to God and it is a hard hoe to run. It is tough. So he says, you must endure hardship. What? As a good soldier of who? Jesus Christ. And then you say, well, how do I do that? Well, he says, look, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. No. Why? Because he has one ambition. He may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. In other words, Paul says the stuff of this world means nothing. The things of Jesus mean everything. And my one passion, the one driving impetus in all of my life is that I please him. And therefore, as a good soldier, I know who my brigadier general is. His name, my commander-in-chief, his name is Jesus. Number three, be a competitor. Here he uses the imagery of athletics, and he says in verse 5, And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. First of all, he says, get into the contest. If anyone competes, understand that you are indeed called to run in a race. You are called to a spiritual boxing match. You are called to a spiritual wrestling match. And therefore, if you compete, get in the contest. But then secondly, go for the finish line. Go for the crown. He says there, no one is crowned. Is it right to seek to be crowned? Yes. But you're not really competing against your brothers and sisters in Christ. In fact, if anything, you're competing against yourself. And perhaps more accurately, you're competing against the evil one. And therefore, is my goal to win for Jesus? Yes. Absolutely. After all, we're going to win in the, in the end anyway. So my goal in ministry is to win for him, not lose. Is to succeed, not fail. To have victory, not defeat. And therefore, if anyone competes in athletics, he will not be crowned unless he competes according to to the law, the rules. You engage with care. Here Paul is simply summarizing what he said elsewhere. It is possible to become disqualified. It is possible for you to get thrown out of the game. It's possible to step out of bounds, to foul out, to strike out. You can think of all the athletic imagery that you want, and it's possible for you to fail as an athlete if you don't play according to the rules. Ask the little guard from Wake Forest, who should have been, well, no, he stopped here. I'm, I'm, I'd say something playfully, but y'all might take it out of context. Who is not going to get to play in round one of the ACC tournament. He ought not to be. He did something the other night that he ought to be, in fact, he ought to have been banned for the rest of the year as far as I'm concerned. Taking your fist and hitting a guy where you ought not to hit a guy? Yeah, he ought to be banned. He didn't play according to the rules. He should have been kicked out of that game. And so you don't play according to the rules. Ask all these boys now that are having to step up to the plate with steroids. People that we're supposed to admire as athletic heroes. Bunch of jokers. Sham. Fake. Not the real thing. Won't go down in history as being someone greatly admired. Why? Because they didn't play according to the rules. They cheated. 
They cheated. Paul says the same thing can be true in your life as a minister. And then finally, and this is one I like the best, be a farmer. Be a farmer. He says in verse 6, there's one requirement, hard work. The hard-working farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Now, you know anything about farming? You know that you sow that seed. My granddaddy was a farmer. And uh, unfortunately, I nearly every now and then got taken out to the farm. And my granddaddy didn't mind making a 5-year-old, a 7-year-old, a 10-year-old go out there and work for hours with him in the field. That was not my idea of a good day at Grandmom and Granddaddy's. Uh, I think in part that's what drove me to get a college degree. I had nightmares at night that I'd have to become a farmer. Now, I love farmers. I thank God for them. I just don't want to be one. Uh, because, I mean, you walk up and down those roads, and then later those things actually do, several months later, if there comes sufficient rain, uh, they yield a crop. And if you've ever pulled ears of corn, it cuts your hands. That is no fun. And you get down there and you start picking green beans off those things, you've got to crawl on the ground. And, you know, after a little boy's done that for about five minutes, he's ready to quit. You know, in my mind, that's plenty of time, but not with my grand. No! I mean, I'd say, I want to go watch TV. The TV has the antenna back there. That's the devil's ears. You don't need to be watching TV. And, you know, as a little boy, my idea is sitting in front of the TV, watching cartoons, drinking Cokes, and, and eating popcorn or candy or something. No! So I know what this hardworking stuff is like, and I understand. The hardworking farmer gets up what? Day after day after day after day after day after day after day. And for many of those days, he gets out there and works those fields and he doesn't see anything. But, he says, just stay with it. The hardworking farmer, he'll be first to partake and share in those crops. And so he kind of gives it a concluding word of wisdom. Last imperative too. Consider what I say. And may the Lord give you understanding in all things. Bottom line, understand, you're a teacher, you're a soldier, you're an athlete, and you are a farmer. And if you can keep those before your mind's eye, you'll get a long way down the road in being a faithful minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ and a faithful minister to that ministry to which he has called you to perform. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Second Timothy Lord, I still can't even imagine that the greatest Christian who ever lived, the greatest missionary, the greatest uh, theologian, at the end of his life was all by himself except for Timothy. That when he stood trial, everyone ran. I can't imagine that. And yet, if that is what happened to Paul, I have no right to expect anything different. Maybe by your grace and your plan, my life will not end that way. But if it does, help me to remember that's how it ended for Paul. That's even how it ended for Peter. That's how it has ended many times for some of your greatest, most wonderful choice saints. It's a pretty good lineup to be a part of. Give us the grace. Give us the faith. Whatever it is that you will call us to endure. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. 
Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.